Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Our guest today, the amazing Kimberly Martin, is the author of three medical fiction books, The Queen of Hearts, The Antidote to Everything, and the just-released Doctors and Friends, which has received the highly coveted starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Booklist, who actually said it was compelling to its core. It's certainly the trifecta of stars. I am Ron Block. As an emergency room doctor turned novelist, Kimmery is eminently qualified to write compelling stories from her experience and expertise. Little did she know her work would enter the truth is stranger than fiction realm. Her journey to publication is fascinating and took on a very personal twist. We can't wait to dig into the origin of this story. I am Patty Callahan. Kimmery, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. We have set the stage to draw our listeners in to hear about Doctors and Friends and about your road to publication. Can you give us an overview of the book? Sure. And thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to talk with y'all. So Doctors and Friends is about an infectious disease doctor who happens to be traveling with her best girlfriends from medical school during what turns out to be a brand new worldwide viral pandemic. And the first thing I usually tell people about this book is that I had the idea in 2018. I was writing an article about the book I wanted to write. And then I researched, drafted, and sold it to the publisher in 2019. So y'all can just go ahead and blame me for what happened. It's all your fault. (laughs) Yes, it is. So the publisher was going to pitch the novel originally as The Hot Zone Meets Sophie's Choice. So if you have read those books, you are now cringing. Totally (laughs) see it. I totally see it. Yeah. um, So the plot line for The Infectious Disease Doctor revolves around her two children who both become ill near the end of the pandemic. And she happens to have access to one dose Mm. of an experimental antiviral medication. And she actually has to select which child will receive it. And I know that that sounds implausible, but I actually based it on two real life scenarios. That's crazy. And I have to tell you, when I was reading those scenes, like I was welling up because I'm like, as a parent too, you just can't even imagine being put in that spot. It just... uh, You did such a great job with it. 
Thank you. I mean, you can't imagine it, but I will tell you that my own children are really captivated with the idea that the mom has to pick between her kids. So whenever anyone screws up in our house, there's immediately, you know, two other children pointing at them <laughs> emphatically. Choose me. Well, you would choose, choose me. me, right, mom? You would choose me. Right. So, Kimberly, I was a nurse and you are a doctor and I haven't yet. And I always say yet. Been compelled to write a medical story. So let's talk about the origin of this story. Where did the original kernel for the book come from? And at what point did you realize that you had to pivot because of what was happening in the real world? Or did you even pivot? But you obviously didn't get the idea from the pandemic. The idea came way before it. So talk to me about that. Well, I'm curious, Patty, um, about how your book's arise too. For me, it's kind of character driven. And the very first thought that I had for this book was I wanted to base the main character's personality a little bit on my own father's. He was my person and he died. And he had this very singular, scientific, yet funny, innovative personality. And so I thought if he had been a doctor, he would have been an infectious disease doctor. And so once I knew I wanted to write about an infectious disease doctor, then I started thinking, okay, what could happen to her? And of course, you know, history has been riddled with prior pandemics and we will undoubtedly experience pandemics in the future. So to me, it didn't seem like that prophetic a topic. I thought, well, this will happen again. I just did not think it would happen months after I had, I had written <laughs> the first draft. Yeah, so we did decide to change some of it afterwards. Not a lot, but we changed several pivotal things. It's like you were writing the book and living a pandemic in real time. But your book is not set fully in America. Correct. So part of the book is set in Morocco and Spain. And then there are three point of view characters in the book. One is an ER doctor in New York City. One is an OBGYN in San Diego. And then one is the ID doctor at the CDC in Atlanta. So we do bounce around a lot in the story. And I actually got to travel to Spain and Morocco um, for research in, that, in 2019, which was very cool. And on your social media, I love looking at it. You've posted pictures of it. So, I mean, for me, the research and the origins of a story are just as interesting as the story itself, because it's the fertile ground it grew from. And I loved looking at the pictures of your journeys and wondering how much of the story came out of those travels. How much did those travels, you know, were they part of the origin of this story? Well, actually, one of the really cool things about going to Morocco was I actually met a writer who owns a literary cafe in Tangier. And I stayed in touch with him uh, throughout the pandemic and also um, met a physician in Morocco and stayed in touch with him throughout the pandemic. So I really got to correspond with them and see what they were actually going through um, when when our real life plague hit. Um, so that was just such a one of the wonderful things about being an author is you make all these global connections with readers and people that you crowdsource. It's so cool. Yes. And someone you think you're just tapping for research ends up being 
a dear friend. I've had the same wonderful, magical thing happen. It's pretty amazing. I love it. One of the compelling themes of the book, though, was as I was reading it, the medical community that you created and the government officials who handled the pandemic within the story was very different from the pandemic that we lived through. It's including the name of the virus was different. Uh, Were a lot of the characters' decisions and actions due to the gift of hindsight when you went back to do edits? So what's funny is I'm on a book tour right now, and I have been telling the audiences that the book is not all grim. I tried to actually include some humor and some sweetness and some optimism and hope. But regarding the humor, what I like to tell people is an example of something funny in the book is that the governmental and societal response to this virus was very unified. Everybody was on the same page. Yes. (laughs) Imagine, right? They all agreed what to do and they did it. And we did talk afterward, my publisher and I, about whether or not to alter that to be more reflective of reality. And we decided not to. We decided this is more of a what might have been tale. And I honestly did not foresee the degree to which society would fracture over um, decisions about how to handle the virus in real life. Right. And that was one of the things I loved is as I was reading it again, I'd be like, oh, we should have done it this way. Or, oh, we should have had the things go this way. Um, so you really did handle it well. And it was a wish list. It became a wish list for those of us who have been going through that. Yeah, I very deliberately made the president a young scientific woman. And yes. actually, I modeled her on a real life person. Who? <laughs> really? Dr. Kizzy Corbett. Uh, She's one of the researchers at the NIH. She's at Harvard now, but she was at the NIH at the time. Um, She's one of the researchers who developed the mRNA vaccines. Oh, that is so fascinating. I got to hear Jennifer Downda speak about CRISPR and mRNA. We are not going to run down a, a medical rabbit hole because with you, I could I could start to talk about genomes and gene splicing and what it's meant for us and how this vaccine we got um, is built on all these discoveries that happened before. So, yeah, decades ago. Yeah, decades ago, decades ago, and they ne- they they couldn't have foreseen what it would be for, and here we are. So it's fascinating that you you imagined the president as a scientific woman, because sometimes I think when we write, we write the parallel worlds that we wish we had. Um, A lot of people ask why I write about, say, a small town where everybody knows everybody. And it's because it's the opposite of, of what I had. So sometimes we get to write the ghost life we don't have, the one that runs alongside. So I love that you did that. And the construction of the book is seamless. Telling this story from each point of view offers a storytelling experience that propels the tension while we get all these various angles. I'm curious, structure-wise, how you decided which character and also which medical specialty your characters practiced. How did you decide which one to speak from and what medical specialty to put them in? In the original draft of Doctors and Friends, the only point of view was Kira Marchand, the infectious disease doctor. And then after COVID, my editor came back to me and she said, we're concerned about publishing this book. 
we will have all lived through a pandemic by the time it comes out. Because as you know, Patty, the wheels of publishing grind very slowly, (laughs) unlike in emergency medicine where you're always racing around like you're on fire. So she asked me if I would rewrite portions of the novel to reflect the perspective of some of the other doctors who were characters in the book, but who were not point of view characters. Because she said, while we will have all lived through a pandemic, we will not all have lived through a pandemic on the front lines. Mm. And she thought that people would want to see some of what that was like in other specialties. So I took the ER doctor in New York City and the OBGYN in San Diego and made them point of view characters. And ER was an obvious choice for me. I didn't have to research that one. Um, But I did actually wind up crowdsourcing a huge group of emergency medicine doctors during COVID. And they sent me the most heart-wrenching emails you can imagine. This was early 2020 when everyone was baffled and upset and overwhelmed. And I did sort of tap into some of that angst and horror that they were feeling at losing people over and over and over again and not understanding, you know, all these weird systemic responses. So even though the book was written pretty much by that point, a lot of that did affect that character's point of view in the revision. Is there one character you enjoyed writing more than another that you felt more connected to that came easier? I mean, I'm guessing emergency room, but sometimes characters surprise us and their backstory really echoes with our own. And I don't know, did you feel that way about one or the other? Well, I don't know what this says about me, but <laughs> I really I identify with psychoanalyze the- <laughs> whatever it might be. Trust me. <laughs> all right. All right. Here it comes. I really identified with the snarky character. <laughs> ah, that's your inner snark that doesn't get enough chance to come out. Uh, yeah. So the ER doctor was pretty snarky and the OBGYN was very um, warm and motherly and um, lovable. And I had a harder time writing her. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. That's so fascinating. Maybe you're, you need to let your inner snark out a bit more, Kimmery. I think it comes out quite a lot, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. So the characters are they are just so fully realized. A, d- did you base them on somebody that you knew each of them? Or the next part of that is, have people then said, is that me? Is that me in the book? Well, one of the reasons I started writing at all was I have this real life group of medical school best friends. And there's seven of us. And these are my, you know, ride or die people. These are the ones that I go to when something goes great and when something goes wrong. And we have lived through everything imaginable over the last, you know, long time since we graduated. And I wanted to try to reflect some of the, you know, intensity of that friendship and the love and the camaraderie. Um, So when I first started writing, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about a group of medical school friends. And now everyone does ask, are they, do they correspond with specific characters? And really, no, I did pull little bits of their personality and my personality and other people and into these characters. And so there might be a little bit of them in each one, maybe, but they don't exactly line up with the with the character in the book, which is good because they would be mad at me based yeah. on what some of the characters do. <laughs> exactly. Some of those decisions. But I was thrilled to see Georgia and Jonah back. So that was a, a, a great, a great bonus to reading the book. Yeah. And we won't, we won't give any spoilers, but um, I was 
George is probably my favorite character. Well, maybe Jonah is my favorite character I've ever written. I love those two. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful. I love that you can visit them again. All right, let's talk about how reality and fiction intersect in your book and in general when we write. And I know you joked at the beginning. I'm sorry, it's my fault. But it sometimes feels like that when we are creating these worlds and then they get echoed in the real world. When I was writing Surviving Savannah, they found the ship, right? And these things happen to us. So do you think that sometimes, not to be too woo-woo, but do you think sometimes our stories rise up to meet us in the real world, a synchronicity set in motion by our decision to write this story? Yes, I do. And um, on that note, I am writing a book about winning the lottery. So, (laughs) (laughs) Can I co-author that with you? I don't know. <laughs> can I be I mean, the lottery sure, winner? Yes, <laughs> you can both co-author and then we will party. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think certainly we probably pick up on many conscious and subconscious elements of our own realities for sure. Did you have some of those things happen? I mean, aside from the fact that we had a pandemic, were there things you already wrote about that you were starting to see happening in the world, things that were a bit prescient as far as people's reactions, doctors' reactions, hospitals' reactions, stuff you already had in the book that was that was unfolding in the real world? I think on an individual level, yes, in some of the reactions of the characters. On a systemic level, I got it pretty wrong, as we've already discussed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think I had All of my early readers before it was published were doctors. And I got a lot of emails from them saying, you know, wow, I really saw myself reflected in here. I laughed and I I cried. (laughs) I cried a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. But I also laughed a lot. Now, that being said, I have an enormous fear of making a terrible medical mistake. I know I use creative license a lot to embellish things to make them more dramatic than in the you know in real world they would be. Or I might have picked something kind of implausible to happen medically because it made a better story. And so I do sometimes cringe a little bit about, you know, when doctors read the book. But so far, so far, they've been really supportive and seem to really enjoy it. That's awesome. It is. You're Compton, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got it out of her. (laughs) So you talked a little bit about the research that you did, but I know that just reading, especially the afterword and all of the, the author's notes, you've really done extensive research on this. So can you talk about the process of that? And um, what level of detail did you decide to put in the book? Cause I have to say reading it, I, I want, I wanted to say, I might not have understood some of these things before we went through a pandemic. So yeah. you kind of, you, you kind of, it felt like you took a leap and trusted that we all had better knowledge than we previously had. Well, and I always think people will figure it out from context. And I try to explain the more, yeah. you oh, know, esoteric well. medical things, but, but my editor does have to tone me down a whole lot because I'll geek out and really go nuts <laughs> on the epidemiologic terms or whatever. So I started researching, reading a lot of journal articles, reading a lot of books. I crowdsourced over 40 infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, virologists, 
and ER doctors, as well as some neurologists, because there's a big neurologic side effect that happens in the book. And one of the real life scenarios for the situation with the infectious disease doctor's children was a book called Crisis in the Red Zone uh, Mm -hmm. by Richard Preston. And so he details the story of the 2014 Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. And there was an aid camp in Sierra Leone in which two of the medical workers uh, contracted Ebola and were hours away from dying. And the medical director of the camp happened to have access to one dose of an experimental antiviral medication. And he had to pick which of these two people would receive it. Oh my God. And if you want to know how he had that drug, you should read that book because it is a fascinating story with a lot of ethical implications. Oh my goodness. What is it called? Crisis in the Red Zone by Richard Preston. Wow. Same guy that wrote The Hot Zone, if you heard of that book. Okay. Another really compelling theme in the book, of course, is friendship. And you talked a bit about your friendships with your ride or die medical school buddies. And I know it's between authors, it's between, you know, anybody who has this support group when you're trying to work in a field where you need each other. And in your book, The Support and Openness Among the Doctors lets readers feel care more about what happens to each of them because they're deeply connected to the other person. So why do you think it was important to the story and for you working as a doctor, does that ring true in real life? Yeah, you know, actually, I was at a luncheon today in Greenville, South Carolina, and some of the guests were doctors, and they were talking about their friendships, their long term mm-hmm. friendships with other women. And that came up actually yesterday, too. And someone told me, you know, I think that all the female doctors I know are really supportive of one another and really close. And I was saying, yes, I think that's true. And it's true of female authors too. Yeah. So I happen to belong to these two communities that don't, don't see each other as a zero sum game. They, yeah. they really always want to boost up everybody else. And that might be true for dudes too, Ron. I don't know. Cause I'm not one. <laughs> <laughs> not real. Not as much. I, that hasn't been my experience, I, but I've, I have, um, of course, been around the female authors and I'm always amazed at how supportive they are of each other. Yeah, because women have a reputation of being kind of catty, but I, I have not found that to be true at all in those two communities. No, as, as our friend Mary Kay always says, rising tides float all boats. So I don't know why we'd want to poke a hole in each other's boats, right? Oh, my gosh. So oh my I God. love reading. Yeah. And I love reading stories where... Friendship is a driving force because a lot of times it's only about the love story and we forget about these powerful friendships and sisterhoods and brotherhoods that that change who we are. And and they change and it happens in your book. It changes who they how they think about themselves too, because they're mirrors to each other. And I do see it in, in writers too. Did you know that theme going in and just generally in your work? Do you know the themes going in or do they bubble up for you? I think I have some concept of the big thematic issues in a given book. And and all of my novels have actually revolved around the concept of friendship as a fundamental human relationship. And it's, Ah. it's like you say, 
you can find so many romances to read, and that's always fun. And I do like to throw in romances. Into oh, absolutely! Book. I don't. Yeah, what is life yeah. without love? Come on, <laughs> love, and it's it's also funny, right? Like there are always romantic debacles <laughs> that are good for a laugh and for you know tugging at your heartstrings. But it's a little bit more rare to find books centered around friendship, and so that is a definite theme um, in all of my novels. And then. You know, the the themes in this book are a little bit different than in my other two. Um, my first book really trend, trended more towards just pure entertainment. The second book was more issue-driven. And then this one is a little bit more systemic and global and kind of hyper-focused on these individuals within this big picture thing happening. I love how all of the characters are developed and their friendship takes on all these different turns and, and ways that they communicate, but they always, they always come back to the middle and, and the, the basic support that they have for each other. And anybody who wants to read the book, you'll, you'll know what I mean. So you've been very open, Kimberly, about your own personal story with COVID. Do you mind talking about that with us? I don't because I write about it a lot. So one of the more bizarre things for me was writing about a new viral pandemic with, a again, a bizarre neurologic side effect, and then immediately finding myself in right. the midst of a new viral pandemic and developing a bizarre neurologic side effect. So I had COVID in mid-2020, and um, not a terrible initial course. And then I did lose smell. And instead of ever regaining my smell, it came back in a completely toxic way. It's called parosmia. And it's pretty common, actually. There's a very large number of people in the world who now suffer from this. But the upshot is that everything that has a scent of its own smells like a rotting corpse to me. So lemon scent, garlic, tomatoes, people, perfume, alcohol is just unendurable. Um, Like the whole world reeks. And I just wanted to like claw my face off in the beginning. And it has not actually gotten better. And then I also had something called dysautonomia, which is basically sort of a disturbance in the automatic functions of your body controlling blood pressure and heart rate. And so my heart rate gets way too high when I stand and I get dizzy and my blood pressure drops and I get a a lot more short of breath with exercise or with a lot of talking, which has been a problem on this book tour when I'm standing and talking. But at least in the audience, there are always doctors. So I feel like if I do hit the floor... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Somebody will revive me. So, yeah, it has been long haul COVID. And um, I certainly did not foresee that happening. No, no. How are you doing today? Are you doing OK? Is it showing signs of improvement or is it just going to be a, a long, long haul? You know, actually, Ron, this is something I feel so guilty about because I feel like when I was in medical school, there was a maybe slightly derogatory opinion of people with chronic fatigue. Um, which at that time was not even remotely understood. And now I have that. And by the end of the day, I'm usually really exhausted to the point where I have a hard time standing even sometimes. And I think back about my own, like maybe a little too casual dismissal of hearing about that in patients when I was young. And um, yeah, I just feel like crap for, for this maybe dismissive attitude about it. I mean, I hope that I wasn't openly um, 
dismissive to any patients. And, and that's outside my field. So it's not something I ever treated, but I felt bad about that. Oh, please. Um, one of the things I just so admire about you is that you went back in to help vaccinate people during the time when the vaccines first came out. And it was just so, it was like, my God, what a brave thing to do. And thanks, thank you for doing that. But that must have been a hard decision. Well, actually, you know what? That turned out to be so good. I felt conflicted about not being in the emergency department. And in fact, I did I did sign up with the state of North Carolina to be on the emergency reserves. Like if our hospitals had overflowed and we went to, you know, battlefield tents or whatever, I was signed up to do that. But but I felt bad about my colleagues who were getting just crushed, you know, with this at times when when volumes were really high. And so when I started volunteering at vaccine clinics, it was kind of wondrous, especially in the early days when you had these big drive-by clinics with, with you know, 2,000 people a day getting vaccinated. Right, right. Because I always thought while I was there, you know, if an alien came down to Earth and was trying to gather information on what human beings are like and landed at a vaccine clinic, he would see this enormous, cohesive, altruistic operation going on with hundreds of people who were cogs in the wheel of this big thing, not doing it for themselves. You know, people directing traffic, people doing intake forms, medical evaluations, nurses administering shots, um, you know, all this stuff. You'd think, oh my gosh, what a benevolent, loving society. (laughs) Well, there's no aliens that came down, unfortunately. Oh, Kimberly, just thinking about you going through that, it brings the general to the specific. It's, I've been watching your journey on social media and it's really hard to watch. And it's really hard to know that these long haul things still can't be figured out. And this mysterious virus is not fictional. Yeah, but I think the good news is that now this kind of thing is going to get a lot of attention because there have always been post-viral syndromes that were poorly understood. And I think those poor patients were kind of ignored. And now there's a tremendous no international you know, focus on trying to make this better. And people are not dismissive and it's it's good. When you were a first, how long were you an ER doctor before you started writing? Let's see, I started writing about seven or eight years ago. And I did work full time and then gradually kind of started easing off. And then when I got a contract for more books, I um, switched more to full time writing. So I guess I was at ER doctor for 15, 18 years. That whole time, were you thinking you wanted to write a book or was it something that bubbled up later? Like when I look back, when I was a nurse, I didn't want to write. I didn't know I wanted to write a book until... I knew I wanted to write a book. So I wasn't a nurse thinking, someday I'm going to write a book. And when you were, you know, working, were you thinking someday you would write a book or did it kind of rise up in the middle of it? Well, it's funny because when I was in training in my residency, my most ardent desire was to read a book because I love reading. And at that time, we were we would work, you know, 100-hour weeks, 120-hour weeks. There was no time to read. I remember being in the CT scanner getting vomited on by um, a drunk person in the middle of the night. And the CT tech had a book in his hand and was reading while I was standing there in my lead apron, like, you know, while the sky's barfing corn all over me. And I remember staring at that CT scanner and thinking, 
I want to be him. <laughs> like, I want to be able to read a book again. And, and then I did not think that I could ever write a book. I have no background in that, no training in that. And if I had thought that early on, Patty, you know what I would have done? I would have kept journals. Yeah. Because I can't remember 90% of my own experiences anymore. And I wish that I could. So I decided to write almost on the spur of the moment one day. I had just finished some book and I thought, you know, I could do this. I, I think I could do this. I want to try doing this. I've always loved when other people do this. And as soon as I started, I knew I would finish it because I loved it. That's I awesome. That. That's that amazing. Is awesome. So what, what's been the reaction from people in the medical community? You kind of touched on it a little bit. And um, did they, when they heard you were writing this and you were talking to them about your research, were they supportive or they say, oh, don't go there? Well, I think really largely supportive. One of the nice, actually nice side effects of COVID is that I think this is probably true for y'all and for people in various fields, but we became so close online, um, my various doctor groups. There's a group of female doctors in Charlotte where I live. And I feel like I got to know these women in a way that I might not have in real life because we were constantly crowdsourcing each other, asking medical questions, asking practice questions, asking parenting questions, asking social questions, just sharing stuff with each other online. And that was true of my big ER doctor group, a big national women physician group. I'm in a group called Women Who Love Infectious Diseases. <laughs> you know, like there's... <laughs> now that's a name. Yeah. There's a group for everything. And they have, have, have been really supportive in many ways. That's great. Great to hear it. And the trifecta of stars, how did that feel? Kind of surreal. When the first one came, I was like, no, this did yeah, not just yeah. happen. And then they were like, oh, you got another one. And then my publisher said, hey, you got another one. And I just couldn't believe it. It was, that's, that's definitely the dream for authors. We cannot thank you enough for joining us on this episode. Doctors and Friends is a compelling and important exploration of friendship, difficult choices, and global pandemics. It's compelling, well-written, and we urge everybody to get their hands on it. But one last thing is, where can people find out more about you and about the book? And I want to just interject that on some of your social media, you've been so kind to people about giving them tips. And, and one thing in particular I remember is things that were maybe a myth. And then you kind of explained some things about COVID on there. And I just found that really generous. And also, like, it, it reassured me that I my brain's headed the right way. So where can people find you? Well, I'm on Facebook. That's where I do most of my long writing about various issues under the name Kimberly Martin. And I have an author page and my personal page. I probably post more to my personal page. And then Instagram, Kimberly Martin. And my website is KimberlyMartin.com. All <laughs> very easy. complicated. All oh, those super are tough. complicated. <laughs> those are tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm on Twitter too, but I don't I don't do Twitter very well because I am wordy. Like I cannot condense it down to whatever the, <laughs> the character number is on Twitter. I don't even know what the number is anymore. I don't <laughs> I just keep going until it tells me to stop. Yeah. Again, thank you all for being here today. This has been such a special episode. We're so glad you have joined us here and I we hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you did, please share with a friend. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsandfictionbookshop.org shop. 
All sales placed there help to fund Friends in Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends in Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.